Hey, Bankless Nation, welcome to another live edition of State of the Nation. Today, we're going to talk about the Zero Knowledge EVM, the ZK EVM. David, guide us through. This is going to be formatted a little bit differently in that after the intro, I am actually stepping out. So who do we have on the show? How are we formatting this? And who is helping us out today? Oh, we got my good friend Ben Jones from Optimism. Uh, and uh, Ben is uh, going to be our technical co-moderator here to help us unpack the ZK EVM. Ryan, you and I, I think we're pretty smart, but I, there's way smarter people in this industry and there's way more technical things in this industry that we just kind of need some help unpacking. And so we're bringing in some extra help uh, from the optimistic roll-up world to help us unpack the ZK side of things. Uh, so coming in in the second half of the show, once we get, once we, uh, get there, we'll have uh, Alex from ZK Sync and Ye from Scroll. Uh, and Ben is going to help us guide us through this conversation to understand a little bit more about the world of the ZK EVM. It's a world that's heating up. I think the title of this episode is the ZK EVM Wars. And I think, uh, you know, appropriately, it was like three weeks ago, all three ZK EVMs announced something big the exact same week. So the ZK Wars are heating up. David, I'm going to ask you the question I ask before every state of the nation. Wait, we have to, before we get there, Ryan, I want to talk about a little bit about just some intro stuff because uh, we've got Ben uh, okay. here. And so uh, before we, there's going to be a bunch of questions that I think we don't actually necessarily have to uh, ask every single uh, participant here in this, uh, in this stream. So we're going to get some beginner questions out of the way. Uh, and Ben's going to help us with that here. So Ben, I want to, I want to start with uh, this very first question, which is, <laughs> what is the EVM and why is it important and then we'll get to what does it mean to zero knowledge EVM? Oh, good question. And thanks for having me on, y'all. Okay, what is the EVM? EVM is. <gasps> what the heck does that mean? Okay, basically, it is a way to interpret Ethereum programs or Ethereum mm -hmm. smart contracts. So basically, a virtual machine is this notion that you map a bunch of basically numbers, right? Everything in a computer is expressed as a number. And you map certain numbers to certain instructions. Instruction like add, or like divide, or like call, when you want to go and call another smart contract. This is the basis for how you construct smart contracts on Ethereum, Ethereum virtual. Write some Solidity code. What happens behind the scenes is that's taken from text. It goes through something called the compiler that turns it into a bunch of numbers, which is all the instructions that implement the program that you write. That's the EVM. Very important. Very yes, important. I, would is, say, I would say crucially important. It is one of the things that makes Ethereum mm -hmm. Ethereum. Okay, and so we have that. That's what the Ethereum layer one is. Uh, what does it mean for to have a ZK EVM? Why are so many people hyped on a ZK EVM? Mm, yes, so I think they're hyped for scalability. It's very interesting because ZK EVM, right? This, what is the ZK there? It's zero knowledge, right? And interestingly, um, it does use these things called zero knowledge proofs. Arguably, ZK isn't the most important part of the zero-knowledge proof, okay. right? So when you think of a ZK snark, right, might right. be this zero-knowledge, succinct, non-interactive argument of knowledge. A really key letter in that acronym is the S, is okay. the succinct. Because the point of these proofs is that you can basically prove something in a very short manner. So a ZK EVM is about taking the EVM and converting it or running it inside a zero-knowledge environment that lets you prove things succinctly. So what does that mean? Basically, it means you can take the EVM and you can write a proof that says the result of these 10 transactions is state X, state Y, right? You prove the results of the Ethereum virtual machine. But what's interesting about this is you could 
make that not 10 transactions, but 100 or 1,000, and still the proof size stays the same. So you can see why this might be very compelling. And I, can I just uh, bake this down into kind of layman's language here? So the EVM thing, that's the thing that turns Ethereum from a calculator into a computer. And the EVM thing is the thing that Bitcoin does not have. And the reason it functions more like a calculator, you can't run programs on top of it, right? And then the ZK part makes the EVM thing, the computer part of, of Ethereum, much more scalable because it compresses it into this very tiny size. Yeah, I think that's a good way of thinking about it. There's a little more nuance in terms of like, you know, for example, if you're posting 10 transactions versus 1,000 transactions and you're still rolling those up, right, if we're talking about a roll-up, right, then there's still some cost there that fundamentally can't be compressed in quite the same way. It compressed quite a bit, but it doesn't like disappear. Um, there's more nuance, but that's absolutely the what would you say, why are people so stoked on a ZK EVM? Why, why is this such a important thing to like fight over? Why are there so many teams like racing to mainnet? Right, yeah. I mean, so there's a few reasons. At the core of it, though, is that the EVM is what powers Ethereum, and it's mm -hmm. what has all the network. Right? Right. So I work at, I'm a co-founder of Optimism, which is optimistic roll-up protocol. We spent a lot of time making the optimistic roll-ups work with the EVM. Why did we do that? It's because that's where all the applications and all the developers live, right? So to build a good scaling solution, we want to do that. And it's definitely been a limitation of ZK scaling solutions so far that they can't go ahead and take advantage of this. I think people are excited because there's potential with a ZK AVM to build on that network. One last question before we get to analysts. Uh, ben, what are you hoping to get out of this conversation? What should listeners pay attention to listening to this? What are you also hoping to learn here? Mm, good question. So it depends on who the listener is, mm -hmm. right? I think that one of the things, obvious listeners would be like a user of these protocols, right? right. So I think you want to listen to what are the security properties like that you're interacting with? What is the roadmap of this thing that you're interacting with? Uh, I think if you're a developer, then really what you want to be thinking about is what does it actually mean in practice for application? Um, there's different ways that you can go about implementing. There's different levels of support for different tooling and aspects of that, that you'll have access to. And so I think that's two bits of framing. As for what I want personally, oh man, I, everything under the sun, really, yeah. I feel like, but uh, including those questions, um, I'm secretly most excited to hear how we can integrate it into That's a whole nother can you guys um, also go over? So I'm going to be grabbing the popcorn here and just and just watching as a bystander. But just throwing throwing my one question in is: Can you guys talk a little bit about bridges? I know that's not um, typical, like exclusive to zk, but it's it's kind of like a roll up type technology. And I'm um, I think a lot of people listening are probably increasingly concerned about the security of bridges from one chain to another, or from the mainnet to roll up from a, a mainnet to an alt l one. So I'd love to hear a bit more about that. And guys, we're going to get right to the episode. We're talking all about ZK EVMs. But before we do, we want to thank the sponsors that made this episode possible. In the top right corner, we got Alex Kolkowski <laughs> from ZK Sync. Alex, welcome to the show. Uh, hello, everyone. Very excited to be here. And then in the bottom half, we got Yay from Scroll. Yay, welcome to Bankless. 
Hi, thanks for having me. Okay, third, third time's the charm. Uh, before we get into some of the technical details, uh, I just want to go around into the background of, of each of your respective teams just to get a little bit of context about to where each one came from. So Alex, we'll start with you. Uh, where did ZK Sync come from? Like, what's the genesis story? What's the background? Can you kind of walk us through that? Absolutely, very happy to. So I, I'll start with my personal background. Uh, you, you might know that I was born in Soviet Ukraine and I grew up uh, kind of like after the collapse of Soviet Union. And uh, I, uh, I, I was very impacted by the, the thing, the economic and social collapse and all the things that were going there. And it brought me to conclusion that there is nothing more impactful you can do in this, uh, in this world today than increase freedom, increase freedom of societies, increase individual freedom. Uh, and that is what brought me to crypto. Like oh, part of that is, is the, the, uh, you know, um, the potential of crypto to enhance world's freedom which I think is unparalleled with anything else. Uh, and the second part of my motivation was uh, the technological challenges. And I have a software background. I was CTO for the uh, last couple of years before moving into the space. Uh, and I, I, I just was looking at, uh, like, it, it was three and a half years ago. Uh, Ethereum was just getting started. All the protocols were just being built. And there were a lot of issues around usability and security. And, like, everything was missing. And then I looked into kind of, What's going to be the end game? I, I, I was always interested in the end game. Like, how do we get this thing in the hands of everyone in the world? And it was clear that all the problems that are very apparent are going to be solved very soon by some teams, uh, except that uh, except scalability. That that seemed like a really big black box. Uh, so I looked into what's going on in scalability space, and there was Plasma. And uh, Ben, I, I, I know you are working on Plasma. My co-founder Alex Lasso was also working mm -hmm. on that. Uh, so I met him at uh, DEFCON 3, I guess, in, in Prague. And we we came like from, we, we both in, like encountered the idea of zero-knowledge proofs, of succinct zero-knowledge proofs. And we both had an immediate thought that, oh, you can apply that to Plasma and solve most of its issues and actually get something that will work and bring us to mass adoption. And back then, crypto protocols were not, like um, ZK protocols were not, as mature as they are today, but it was pretty clear that over the course of the next two, three, five years, we will get something that is workable in production. But we actually got there a lot sooner. Uh, a year later, Sonic appeared, and, and two years later, we got Plonk, and that was something very, very usable. And uh, Starks appeared around the same time, and all the protocols are now getting converged towards like very, you know, like everything is going in the same direction, and we will have. Uh, incredibly fast protocols, provers, uh, you know, like all, all the uh, mature tooling around that to get us to scale Ethereum with ZK uh, in no time. And before I hand it over to, to uh, Ye from Scroll, Alex, the ZK Sync has been around Ethereum for a while. I remember using ZK Sync to like pay for Gitcoin grants in like 2020 or something. Can you just like speed run us through? how ZK Sync has integrated itself into Ethereum over the last few years? Uh, sure. So we, we, when we started out uh, the project, we built the very first working ZK rollup on Ethereum. It was like we called it back then Ignis, but we had to rename it to ZK Sync short afterwards because of conflict. And uh, it took us two more years to build the, the uh, uh, like fully productive mainnet version for simple payments and swaps. Uh, it's live on mainnet for uh, uh, for for, for two years. like no sorry it was it took us two, one year and it's now live for two years and 
after that, it was very clear that most people will need smart contracts and simple application-specific ZK rollups or like rollups or scalability systems are going to be very, very niche. And you really need this generic, you know, like generic programmability um, with Turing complete uh, programs. So we set out to build what is now known as ZKVM, the um, uh, generic EVM compatible framework that is scalable under ZK conditions. Uh, we launched the internal test net over a year ago. We opened it to the public with Unisync fork of a Uniswap demo last fall, and the test net is open to the uh, like to, to everyone since over half a, half a year. And we just announced a few weeks ago that we will be live on mainnet 100 days, uh, and it's now uh, day um, 87 days for me. I'm sure, Alex, that you wake up every single morning and be like. There's 87 days left. We do now have a huge counter, and it just goes. Oh. <laughs> All right, uh, let's turn the conversation to, to Ye from Scroll. Ye, can you explain a little bit about the, the background behind Scroll? Because Scroll is uh, newer on the scene, uh, and so this is uh, something that's new for a lot of listeners, and, and uh, including myself. Can you just explain a little bit about the background of Scroll? Where did Scroll come from? Yeah, yeah, sure, happy to. So Scroll started one and a half a year ago. We have three co-founders, including me, Chen, and Sandy. We were actually introduced by our mutual friend in the East community. So before that, I was doing ZK research. It's pure about crypto and ZK stuff about math and crypto not directly related to cryptocurrency. And I was working on the proving algorithms and hardware acceleration for zero knowledge proof. Because years ago, the proving is the biggest bottleneck for using zero knowledge proof in practice. So that's the, the problem I work on, like how to make prover more practical and faster and how to support a larger circuit. And uh, Hai Chen is an expert in building robot systems. He got his PhD from University of Washington. He has years of experience working in Amazon, building very complicated systems, like based on compilers, programming language, and GPUs. So he has tons of experience of how to you know, build a, make a system more practical and run in real world. And Sandy is more, you know, like because three of us like diverse a lot in our background. Sandy has been in the broader crypto space for many years. She has been doing investment in crypto since 2017. She has incubated many application level projects and also institutional facing product like products. She was attracted to, to Ethereum more strongly due to the rapidly growing community, the ethos of, of Ethereum, and also like innovations from, from dev developers. And uh, when we met, it was you know instantly clear that we we shared the same vision on what was important, and uh, there was nothing more exciting than us to you know scaling the base layer Ethereum and onboard the next billion of users for for Ethereum. Because for a long time, it's it, it was was wasn't very clear that whether the KVM would even even be technically possible. And uh, previously, ZKRAP can only support like payment swap, very simple applications using some fixed circuit. But recent innovations, because we, we are working on in this area, we know that recent innovations have made that finally possible. And we all want to build something which is truly impactful for the whole Ethereum community. And also we were joined by our common vision to use this, you know, combining with ZK research, advanced technology, to really solve the scalability issue of Ethereum. So that's basically the, the genesis of Grow. And although like we are new, but we, we have grown really fast. We have 40 people in our team now, and uh, 30 are engineers and researchers. Wow. So most are just strongly technical focused. 
and we have an incredibly strong technical team with mostly people have a strong math and crypto background. And this background is, is immensely useful for understanding the backbone of, of the EVM, which highly relies on the proof, basically all math and crypto stuff. Um, and many of many a member of our team had years of blockchain development experience and has been, you know, active contributor to a lot of open source repos like Foundry and stuff like that. And uh, because our region is aligned with Ethereum of being decentralized, many members of our, our team are also like, you know, quite global and decentralized. We, we work remotely. We have people across Asia, US and Europe, like including like China, Singapore, New York, Bay Area, Poland, Ukraine, Australia, a lot of other places. So I'm very proud of you know our, our current team, and we are super focused on on building. Like although we are we are installed like previously, and we want to be build the, the best like user and developer friendly ZKVM solution, and we work well together as a remote team. And also we, we have been very careful like in how we we grow this team by bringing on the, the colleagues who are highly value aligned with high integrity and also the right motivation to work work with us in this space. Nice. Yeah, beautiful. All right, David, I want to ask some questions. Can yeah, I get we'll, into it? Go for it. Let's do it. Okay, 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 okay. So, all right, I think the first question that I would like to ask um, the both of you is, it's very clear that ZKVM, to your point in your intro questions to me, David, is like, you know, a, it's like been a problem on the horizon that we've been thinking about for a very long time. And like, when we first started the ZK scaling stuff, we did not start with the EVM, right? Because it's a very, very hard problem. So. Obviously, there's been huge strides made, to your point earlier, Alex, and I have a suspicion that there are different approaches being taken to solve this problem, right? Mm -hmm. Usually when there's a hard problem, you get a few different strategies, strategies sure. yeah, or right. ways. Yeah. So what I'm really curious um, to hear from the, the folks on this panel are, what do you think are the unique things about the approach that you take, what, and what are the things that are shared between um, the different approaches? And notably, right? We have two panelists here. There are a few other teams building ZK EVMs as well. Mm -hmm. So I'm really curious to hear from you guys what you think the lay of the landscape is and what your strategy in particular is to tackle this in some unique way. And Alex, we'll start with you. Uh, sure. So the approach we are taking uh, goes back to how we think about the strategy of, of building ZK Sync, and that goes back to the mission. Our mission uh, is accelerate the mass adoption of crypto for personal sovereignty. And accelerate means move faster. Like we believe that it's coming no matter what, but like we want it to, to, to arrive not in, in 10 years, but in, in two years. And to move faster, you need to be very pragmatic. So what, what, we're, we, like how we, what we learned from building the first version is that you're much better off launching something that works and then gradually iterating over that than like waiting for a perfect solution, trying to construct this like, abstract uh, beauty in, in, in vacuum. So like where I have this picture, which you, you might know, like oh, yeah. this is how we operate, right? With building gradually and not trying to, to get perfection. Uh, and how we started actually, we, we um, initially there was no real way from the limitations of provers and like from, from, from the protocols themselves to build a Turing complete version of EVM. So we tried to build a non-Turing complete version of smart contracts. And we had to construct a new language called Zinc. Uh, so we had to, to build a compiler team and we we like 
we took Rust as a base, not as, not the Solidity, because we thought like if you have to learn a new language, which is going to have a lot of these internal limitations, doesn't really matter. You, you need to learn from scratch. So let's take something that is more familiar to like broader audience. Uh, we quickly learned that it's going to be very problematic to to force people to re relearn the language and like to adopt the uh, developer tools, everything like that, that's just going to be a mess for adoption. That's not what engineers want on the one hand. On the other hand, there were some breakthroughs in the cryptography, like in, in Plonk, in recursive Plonk, uh, in, in uh, improved efficiency for certain gadgets, for certain cryptographic functions that are required to build something like EVM that we thought, okay, we're going to take on the challenge and actually build a full ZKVM, something fully compatible with Ethereum, where you can take existing smart contracts, written in native Solidity or Viper, and you just take them and, and launch them on this thing. Uh, and we looked again, like what's going to be the fastest way to get there? So our head of engineering, Anthony Rose, is actually coming from SpaceX. He used to, to be in charge of the satellite factory there. Uh, and we borrowed this concept of the critical path from SpaceX. Like what's the, the shortest possible way for us to get to, 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 the, to the goal? And it turned out that we can reuse our compiler skills and, the, and build something very similar to, to what we now know uh, Stark was doing with Cairo, uh, namely to create a um, virtual machine that is optimized for probability under zero-knowledge proofs, specifically optimized to be very efficient under SNARKs. And then create this virtual machine with all the conventions of solidity and DVM. So that like all 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 the calls, all the uh, interactions, all, all the you know, interfaces are exactly the same as EVM, but you just have a different set of opcodes underneath. And then we can use the compiler to take the code written for EVM and, and bring it over here. And this is the approach we're taking. As far as I know, no other ZK EVM team is working in this direction. Stack we're doing this for Cairo, but you have to relearn it, like the uh, Cairo language. They, they have some uh, to to transpile code from Solidity to Cairo called Warp, uh, but you actually have to maintain the code in Cairo. Then. You, there is no way for you to, to keep Solidity as the source of truth as, as your basic code. And it, it would be very, very hard to keep the same code base between layer one and layer two or between different layer twos. That that was something that was not acceptable to us. We wanted the code base to be exactly the same, executable as well in mainnet as in in any layer two. That's our approach. Uh, I'll pass over to you. Ben, does that generate any follow up questions, or should we throw it to Ye? Um, okay, wait. Let me just okay. So let me just make sure I'm following right, Alex. So basically, what we've said is we talked about in the intro of the show that we have this thing called the Ethereum Virtual Machine. It's how you interpret. Um, you know, smart contracts in Ethereum mainnet. Basically what you've written is a virtual machine that's very similar, that's meant to be like very mappable and like close and related, that is optimized for ZK proving. And then you can basically relatively easily take Solidity code that is meant to go to the EVM target and compile it instead to this other target. Is that right? That is correct. So we are actually not just, we, we don't have a native compiler from Solidity. We are using the Solidity compiler to produce the intermediate U uh, representation ah, the of, of the code. IR. Oh, yes. Uh, and exactly. We, we, and then we're going from Yule to, uh, uh, to our virtual machine, which is a lot easier to make that step. And in between, we're using LLVM 
as our compiler framework, which is a very mature, very uh, well-tested, bottle-tested uh, uh, framework with a lot of tooling, a lot of optimization. So our code is actually a lot more optimal than what Solidity uh, compiler natively produces for EVM. We have three times less opcodes in the final um, result. Uh, and yeah, so th this approach is the fastest to bring to, to, to production. Uh, and yeah, we, we started working on this for like for, since two years. So like we're, we have something that's very, very mature in, in compiler. It, it works in like, you know, we have, we're covering all the tests from Ethereum, uh, test suits and, uh, it's running in a very stable way on our test net, which is public. Like a lot of teams are, are deploying there. We have hundreds of teams already working on test net. Everything works really, really well. <laughs> Uh, but the, the the most important thing is it will produce the uh, uh, resulting virtual machine bytecodes that are very optimal. The the uh, execution, the proof generation for the uh, zk VM for optimized zk VM is going to be orders of magnitude less than approaches that try to mimic EVM at bytecode level. So we are we are talking about like very very low costs per transactions, uh, which we can scale to both support the high load of DeFi uh, NFTs, but also like very broad use cases, just gaming and like oh you know like all, all the new things that are coming to blockchain. Once we can actually support the scale of tens, hundreds of thousands TPS, uh, and it, in those cases it really matters. Like if your transaction costs like 10 cents or 0.1 cent, it matters a lot. You cannot just like, it, it, this is the quantitative step that unlocks qualitative difference uh, in what you can actually build and, uh, and execute and run on in these networks. Beautiful, all right, let's turn to Ye from Scroll. Ye, can you talk about the uh, competitive difference that Scroll is bringing to the table? How is the approach to the ZK EVM from Scroll side of things unique from the others that you would find in the land same landscape? Yeah, 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 sure. I think technology-wise, there are like mainly two two differences. One is on the ZKVM side, and the other is on the infrastructure side. Um, firstly, on the ZKVM side, uh, so our goal is that we want to have the deepest level of compatibility with Ethereum down to the client implementation. So by saying that, like we are not only being compatible with the solidity at the language level, like either you are you or like any other, we will like be compatible with EVM itself at the bytecode level, which means anything as far as you can use the existing compiler to compile down to the EVM bytecode, and we can prove that it's correct. And also like by saying client implementation, we are reusing the existing Ethereum node implementation called GAS to generate our layer two blocks. So this is pretty similar to what Optimism is doing, like just try to reuse the implementation from Ethereum to enhance the, the performance, the security, and also, like you know, in the long upgrade, like we will be more aligned with with Ethereum. So there is no compiling, there is no interpreting in between. So it brings us another level of compatibility more than just the the RPC interfaces, but it's a deeper level of you know like compatibility on the implementation side. And for users, it means they can do whatever they can on Ethereum using the same UI and UX. And for developers, they can reuse all the Ethereum toolings even include some debug toolings, like where you definitely need to down, down to the bytecode level. Like for example, you need to like look up some, some stack information and things like that. And they can migrate their code to scroll without any modification. 
And uh, also, like, you know, this brings us another benefit, like where our implementation will be the most closest to the end goal of Ethereum, where Zeki EVM can eventually be used to prove for layer one mainnet blocks. So in that sense, we are not only building for ourselves, we are not building like just for layer two purpose, but we are actually co-building this for the future of Ethereum because, you know, it's very beneficial for Ethereum in the long term. So that's from the, the compatibility and the Zeki EVM side. And another thing I want to mention is that on the infrastructure side, we have designed a decentralized prover network. So there is both a, a technical difference, like innovation there, and also a strategic difference. Because you know a, a big problem when mentioning like by maybe optimistic grow up or other other teams is that the, the proving cost is large because you know generating proof is really slow and considered to have you know very high 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 cost is is very expensive. But we can actually solve this problem by allowing many people to generate proof in parallel. And also, this can drive the efficiency of, of proving hardware to the to the extreme, and eventually even have the ASICs to support the, this proof generation. Like anyone can just use this type of hardware or use general proper GPU or whatever they can to generate proof for us for our platform. And uh, it's very you know we we are prioritizing this because this is also like not only the technical like advantage but also strategic differences because you know. Uh, more, more immediately, if, especially with the ETH merge, uh, miners could potentially just be be our provers. They can they can reuse their GPU machines to join provers and join our ecosystem if if they don't want to, you know, switch to another work work chain. So that's you know a both like technical innovation and also a strategic move for for us. So yeah. Let me ask. Okay, so I want to do the same thing and make sure that um, following. So basically, what Yes said, I think. Correct me if I'm wrong is that you uh, effectively have a program that is written, is, I, I would assume that's written in a, um, that's running in some sort of lower level ZKVM, that is this Turing machine, Turing complete machine. And then you're running an EVM interpreter on top of that basically, is that right? So we are not even having this you know, middle layer. We are directly, like, so for example, if you, you, you receive a transaction, you execute it on, on gas. And then you output some information, like the execution trace, like which opcode you are actually executing. And then you use this trace as a witness, like to fit into this circuit and prove that it's a valid trace using a very single proof. And yeah, then this proof, yeah. like as far as you have this proof, it means, oh, it, it, this, this trace is valid. So this, you know, like transaction is, is correct. So there is no like middle step. You just reuse every information from the existing client implementation. Yep. Yeah. Got it. And that circuit, I guess what I'm getting at is that circuit. So when you feed in, when you, okay, so it makes sense to me that you run the transaction on Geth, like vanilla thing. And Geth has a yes. wonderful thing called the transaction trace, which will give you sort of yes. a step-by-step -step set of these instructions of the Ethereum virtual machine that we talked about, right? Mm -hmm. Geth will like break that down instruction by instruction. It went here and then it went there and then it went there. So that all makes sense. But then what is actually running when that information is transferred to the um, prover? What is the circuit running? Is there some sort of Turing complete thing that is then running the EVM on top of it? Is it, have you actually written like an EVM like circuit for all of this? What is that part of the stack? Yeah, yeah. So basically what we are doing to handle this is that for each opcode, we will implement some sub circuits to prove it's correct. For example, if if you are uh, add opcode and we prove that this this number adds to this number equal to this number. So we have a specialized sub circuit for each opcode. It's a one to one mapping. Got it. And then like because and then like in EVM circuit we compose those sub circuits together and then open 
or, or, or like, you know, on or off, like using some selectors. We call that selector in, in circuit, but basically, if you meet with this opcode, you open this certain constraint. And you if you meet with the other opcode, you open the next. And then, like, you know, you prove that this is this is correct yeah. and uh, by constraining each opcode. I'm interested. I'm really interested to hear from you, Alex, on this. Like, it, it's interesting. I know I've been on a panel with you, and you love parallelized proof generation as well. I think all the ZKers do it. I totally do as well. Um, but it also seemed like earlier you said you had a bit of a different approach um, for performance reasons. So I'm just curious, like, to hear what each other's perspective is on these things. Like, is the performance of zk proofs an issue or not? I feel like I I get conflating answers sometimes. Um, that's so a great question. Yeah. That, that's a really great question. So I, I, I don't see that we have different strategies here. Like all ZK teams will eventually work towards decentralizing the the, uh, the prover. Uh, we are working on this definitely from like, this is very important to us. We don't want to be any like, single point of failure. We don't want to run any operator that controls like the validation of the uh, transactions going in layer two on or the proof generation. So. It will be decentralized. Uh, it can we can reuse uh, Ethereum miners. Indeed, we we we've been working on the GPU prover hardware for the last two years as well, and we have some pretty amazing results. Like the the GPU prover that we have on that, that runs on ordinary consumer GPUs is something like fifty times faster than like fifty times cheaper than the uh, the uh, proofs produced on CPUs, and. Uh, for the broader concept, it's really important to understand that whenever we talk about the prover efficiency, we always are talking about the parametrized cost per transaction. Prover is always di di distributed, like it's always done in parallel. No one is running a prover on a single machine. Like if they do, they, it will take them hours to generate a single proof. Like, uh, what we are doing, what probably other teams are doing as well, is like we run it on in, in as as many machines as we need in parallel. Uh, and since the structure of the circuit is that we kind of recursively combine many circuits together, uh, our latency to generate proofs with GPUs is going to be like less than a minute. So we will be able to like really to to, to get the blocks really fast. So what really matters at the end is like. What is the cost of this proof generation divided by the number of transactions? What is the cost per transaction? Uh, and that is where the differences will materialize very significantly with our approach, or like what Starquest building, versus uh, what uh, Scroll, like this very ambitious goal of Scroll to make EVM circuit like circuit level compatibility. That is going to be like several orders of magnitude higher. We're very curious to see what the numbers actually are. But that, that is very complex, and that is very complex also to maintain. So uh, huge uh, respect to the team uh, who, are, who are trying to make this. Like, we, we didn't trust ourselves. We, we, we went for a much simple, simpler approach because we know that the more complexity you add, really, like, it, it, it grows nonlinearly with the number of systems you add and with the number of layers you add to, to each system. It just, like, explodes at the end. So uh, I want to. So this is with regard to GPUs. Sorry, no. Finish up, Alex, and I'll ask my next question. Uh, no, so this is with regard to, to decentralizing the prover and GPUs, and you just want to add that we decided explicitly not to reuse Geth uh, as uh, like not to rely on on standard nodes for uh, a transaction uh, for for the block building for for deciding what goes into transactions because Geth is known to have very strong limitations on throughput that it will bring with itself. And we decided like if we're 
is building a system that should be capable of running tens of thousands of transactions per second. We should redesign the node from scratch and we're writing it in Rust. Uh, it's highly optimized. We, are, we also have a very strong uh, engineering team uh, working on optimization of uh, of the node because we don't want the node to be the, the bottleneck. Yeah. I think I think Alex, you just opened up the the conversation to the EVM compatibility versus EVM equivalence conversation. But before I, I wanted to go back and just make sure we really knocked down the decentralizing the prover for the layman because that part of the conversation made me feel like a dog driving a car. Um, can you Ben? Can you walk us through why is what what does it mean to decentralize the prover? Uh, like why is that significant for just like the average user to pay attention to? Sure. So I'll talk about this. I'm I'm not the zk experts like these folks, sure. but I have a I have a right. rough sense. So basically, when you construct these zero knowledge proofs, right? That is an operation called proving, mm -hmm. right? Unlike the operation called verifying, which is like in a zk role, what the smart contract on chain does, what all the nodes mm -hmm. do, then downstream right. of that. So. In general, what you have to do, basically, when you produce a zero-knowledge proof is a bunch of extra cryptographic, moon-mathy computation okay. that will give you some fancy numbers that allow the verifier in this succinct manner, right, in this short, you know, constant or logarithmic size manner, to check whether or not the proof is valid, right? And so this is a computationally intensive operation to do it in the zero-knowledge mm -hmm. succinct manner that we're talking about. You basically, if you want to prove something, it's kind of like, you don't just run the comp computation because that's not a proof, that's just you doing it. You have to run the computation in some sort of circuit, zero knowledge, math context okay. that gives you some cryptographic steps along the way that you can sort of combine and aggregate and get, a, and get this succinct proof. Okay. I'm so, guessing that's the doing the ZK stuff is like adding like an order of magnitude of difficulty upon the computation. Yeah, these guys can talk about those numbers much better than cool. I can, but it, add, but it adds overhead yeah. for sure. Uh -huh. For sure adds overhead. Um, and is that like the cost for like a tra when a transaction fee happens on like a ZK rollup? Is that is that the cost of this thing? Is that related? Are these related? So it will be related, okay. right? I think I, I think I haven't looked into the details of either of these folks fee markets, but that mm -hmm. is I think what would be a very reasonable thing for a fee market to do. I think probably okay. a requirement. There's additional costs, right? Because in, even in a zk rollup, you're still rolling up that data, right? right? Which means you're posting it to Ethereum or whatever, right? I know at least um, Alex has like other more plasma type things that don't require that. So it's going to be a chunk of the cost, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Is there anything that, that Ben and I just said like stand out to you guys that you guys want to add on a comment to? That's good to me. Cool. Yeah, yeah. All right. Uh, so we definitely got to talk about EVM compatibility and, and EVM equivalence because I think that's really, uh, Alex, you said that Geth is really just not optimized for some of this parallel proving magic. Uh, but, but yay, from what I've gathered, Scroll is really going after what Alex called like the very ambitious task of figuring out how to make Geth and a ZK rollup work together. So I think that's where we want to take this conversation next. But before we do that, we got to talk about some of these fantastic sponsors that make the show possible. Go. Okay. Welcome back, y'all. We're back in action. So, okay, we, we just had a really interesting discussion on you know, some of the differences in these approaches. And one thing, to your point, David, that came up just before the break is understanding um, the role of, I think the, I, so I take some guilt for creating this term, which could be very confusing, but EVM equivalence is like mm -hmm. a wonderful term that mm -hmm. we use at Optimism to describe how we kind of try to move towards using Geth as much as possible. Mm -hmm. And this has been a matter of, of debate, and there are differences between our two panelists here and what they do. So I'm really curious to hear from you guys how you think about um, the developer experience. We talked a lot about the approaches sort of from a proving architectural cost, 
GPU type of a perspective, but there's also the side of developers and what they're going to experience. So I'm curious to hear from you guys, uh, from the panelists, uh, what your different approaches to this developer experience are. What does it really look like for a developer to be implementing on, on one or the other? And um, how do you think about that long term is the other question. Are you at a place where you're comfortable? Are you trying to move in a specific direction? What's the take? So maybe we'll start with yeah. developer experience, which means we will provide exactly the same execution environment as ECM layer one. So developers can pretty much reuse all the you know developer toolings around, like including the debugging toolings. Like if you want to go into the stack and look up some information, you can still use that. And because as far as I know, like many guest developers, uh, many many even application level developers, they are very familiar with the guest implementation, so that it's easier for them to, to debug and uh, and uh, like you know, have some index security analysis. So I think we 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 have some advantage on that because we are using a fork of gas to to generate our blocks. And uh, and also like uh, because you you are compatible with all the developer toolings. So developers are very comfortable with you know every toolings they use on on layer one. They don't need even any extra plugins or any to link to any external compilers. They can just reuse whatever is there. So in the long term, I think it's more. Like secure, secure way because firstly EVM has to test of time. Like what, like the the, the design philosophy of each opcode, this stack based virtual machine, its its security is, has to test of time. If we we just reuse everything from EVM, it's very easy to audit our code. Like because, uh, you know, our execution environment will make sure that the the circuit will behave exactly the same as EVM. Like if you make mistakes there, then you 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 can make make mistakes here. So. If, but if it's cracked there, then like you know, because they behave exactly, exactly the same. So it's, I think that's that's important, like in the long term, why you, remaining this EVM equivalency is important. And also, secondly, as I mentioned, like if you you are more aligned with this implementation for the further ECM upgrade, like you like people are doing experiments over gas for EIPs for different improvements, you can directly reuse the same code base to improve your layer two design. And also, like even sometimes give back. I think that's part of the motivations why optimism is, is going into that, that approach. So that's why, like you know, our our design philosophy for this part. And again, like because we are actually giant, like standing on, on top of the the, the the giant. Because when we appear, like the the breakthrough already happened. We know like the the overhead is already affordable. So that's why we directly go into this bytecode level like compatible approach instead of building some some other virtual machines to, to make the, the pooling or, or had more manageable. I thought it was. What makes sense, yeah. Let's hear from you, Alex. Uh, sure, so for uh, we are also on the mission to make the developer experience as easy and pleasant for developers as uh, we possibly can uh, have like, the absolute top. Um, and uh, it's important to see like what is the actual developer experience is like what 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 you expect as a developer from from the environment. What you expect is that you don't have to modify your code and you can use the existing tooling. So you take your your whatever you have uh, written in contracts and front end and test test use etc. And you port it and it just works. Just just work like one click, you know, Stripe like experience. Where you don't have to to do any movements, that is exactly what we're going to bring. We're not going to bring it at the opcode level, but we're going to bring it at all the interfaces, like your 
the code does not need to change. You do not to need to do any re-audits. Your Web3 API works out of the box. Your all the coding conventions work. All the toolings on chain work. We have um, the graph or chain link, uh, uh, a lot of other projects already integrating, already running on, on our testnet, uh, ready to, to provide this experience. So things that will not work because the all codes are different are like low-level debuggers. Uh, but those tools can just integrate. We can work with them. There are not many of them. We can work and make them be as compatible. And then you you use the same. You have your tenderly experience. You have your remix. You have your uh, common uh, line-based debuggers. And they, they provide the same output, the same experience to you. Like you as a developer do not need to, to do anything. And like the surface of changes is, is, is really minimal. Uh, but what is ultimately important to you as a developer is that your code works smoothly, that everything is fast. So the, the, the one way to think about ZK EVM equivalence versus EVM uh, compatibility is like, what would be the analog of like the of, of these things in, in, in the real world, like in, in, in the normal computing? Like imagine you have some some piece of software written for one operating system for a specific architecture. I don't know, like a Photoshop running on Windows. Now you want to run this Photoshop on Mac with M1 processor, right? Uh, you have two options. Either you recompile the code for M1 and it runs super fast and, and you know you, you like the experience, or you run a Windows simulator on your Mac and then you run this Photoshop in the simulator. You can already sense like if you run uh, just some uh, some programs written for the older version of Mac and then you try to run them on M1 without, without optimizations, you already feel the difference, right? Like it's huge. But if you run it in, in an emulator, it's going to be a lot, a lot slower. So your, your developer experience is like tightly coupled with your user experience as well. And that is what matters at the end. Very, very, very interesting. Yeah, I, I, I want to take a careful swat here, David, to be yeah. your co-host because sure. I'm very opinionated as the, as the folks that coined the term EVM equivalence. <laughs> like, I feel like I'm at an interesting position here. Mm -hmm. I'll just say I'm very curious to see how it plays out. I definitely very much vibe with many of the um, things that you said there, Alex. Some of them I became less of a fan of once I had to run a non-EVM equivalent system practice. You guys are also building in a different space, right? You've got these ZK requirements. It's a little bit of a different world. So um, yeah, it'll be very interesting, David, to see how this plays out. I'm a huge fan of developer experience, and I think that EVM equivalence is the way to go there. But we'll see. Alex, any comments on that? Or not? Uh, I'm, I'm also very, I'm, I'm really happy that we have multiple approaches competing. We have our bet, like based on, on our analysis, how, how like what, what's going to be the optimal for developers at the end. Uh, but it's like, it, it's really great that we have this race and, and, and uh, let the thousand flowers blossom. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, any a comment you want to add before I turn the conversation to something else? Yeah, yeah, I think it's, it will be a, just a, like, you know, win-win, like, like eventually, like all for all good for Ethereum, like different tries and uh, like, you know, EVM equivalent environment or this compiler based one. And, but I think, you know, in the long term, it's, you know, like, like if you have actual need for compiler, you have to also upgrade like, you know, your compiler and both your compiler and your circuit at the same time, which actually adds the, the overall complexity because you, you you need to, you know, those two parts are coupled together and you need to upgrade like with, with each upgrade. But for ZKN circuits, all the compiler stuff, you know, those can be reused and that, that those have been tested, you know, years of time. So that's why like, you know, we, 
we want to handle this more complex stuff on the circuit side, but we don't need to handle like you know anything beside that. So. Oh, oh okay. that, that actually, yeah, I want to hear, hear from Alex on that. Yeah, that's a really interesting. I, I, point. Yeah, I, I wanted to add that indeed, like the the uh, what we're what we're building here is the future, and like let's imagine is EVM going to be ossified and be the standard that will be there forever, and like will not undergo any modifications. Like yeah. like imagine that we we have the very first version of uh, of PC with like eighty eighty six architecture. Is this thing going to be like immutable and never change? Like that is hardly imaginable, right? So like we will have some evolution, in my opinion. Like you, you might, you, you, you feel free to disagree. Uh, but I think we uh, with with the compiler, uh, one thing that gives you uh, that the a, a separate compiler, specifically LLVM-based compiler, gives you is an option to have like developer experience beyond just CVM. You can port in any code written in all the modern languages that support LLVM, like Rust, Golang, Python, uh, you know, like C++, whatever. You take that, you compile it, even JavaScript, you compile it to LLVM, and then you can use it as libraries, or we can also define some contract interfaces, and then you eventually can write smart contracts in those languages. And I think that is going to be incredibly powerful, because it, it just opens this massive code bases already written in this very expressive languages with generics, with, with all the uh, cool cool stuff that is not yet possible in Solidity, and that have stood the test of time for like many more years before Solidity was even created. Uh, so I, I find that really, really, really fascinating. Okay, wait, Alex, I've got to dive into this more though. So I, okay, I, first of all, totally agree. If the reader has not heard of LLVM, it is one of the modern marvels of like computer engineering, absolutely fascinating, go check it out. With that being said, there's a, key, there's a key question here that I don't know if I heard an answer to, which I want to dive into, Alex, which is, since you have developed a VM that is the ZK VM that like, is like related to the EVM and maybe has some of the same semantics, but is different, how do you deal with upgrades, right? So like, I totally agree, we're gonna like have upgrades to the L2 VMs. In this, are you basically, uh, like, is implicitly there a commitment to this particular ZKVM that is the that like your current compiler outputs and like is it your goal to maintain that going forward and just build more um, solid circuits around that or do you have the ability to improve that VM in the same capacity? Does that have a question? That is a great question. Yeah, I yeah I, I think we will have iterations. So like in, in the initial versions of uh, all the rollups, we'll have to work a lot on on upgrades and, and do changes. So it, it will be important to, to work with the source code and not with bytecode. I, I, I don't think we will have like an ossified bytecode in in any near time. So eventually we'll have a newer version and yes, you, you will need to redeploy your contracts there. Uh, okay, I see. So you're basically gonna enforce a requirement that you have source code accessible so that if you upgrade the underlying ZKVM that is not EVM, you can recompile and regenerate the bytecode for it. That would not be a hard requirement. So, like, whatever you launch, like, if, if if once we have a stable mainnet, we will guarantee that this mainnet will will run for a long time, uh, and then most likely you will you will have a like. Well, we we, we need to see. I, I I don't know exactly how this process will work, but like, yes, I believe that will there will be progress in both the EVM world and ZKVMs, and eventually will come. We will converge more and more with the world of generic computing. We will reuse the tools like LLVM, static analysis, uh, all the debuggers that that 
the uh, uh, traditional systems can bring. And I just think this process should be gradual and smooth, should not be like a breaking change for you. You have to stop immediately and you cannot support your previous code. You can always emulate, like it, it's quite, um, quite easy for us to add bytecode compatibility in ZK Sync. Because now, like imagine we have the LLVM compiler. We can do, we can write code in Solidity and Rust, and it compiles to this very, very efficient low-level virtual machine. We can just write a contract that executes native EVM bytecodes. We write it in Solidity, or maybe we just compile our Rust implementation and we put it on, on ZKVM. You know, like that, that that will give you the same overhead or maybe even slightly lower overhead than what Scroll or, uh, or Hermes are building. Uh, but it's it's a gradual process. You don't have to wait for this final step. You can already start using porting your contracts to ZK Sync written in Solidity because you recompile them. And the moment we have this contract live, you can just start porting your, your bytecode. If you're willing to take the this massive overhead in, into account, if you want full efficiency, you just compile natively to ZKVM. Fascinating. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> can I add that, more more comments on this? Like, sure. you know, I, I think there are two points. Firstly, that I, I agree that you know EVM may not be the, the end goal, like you know, in, in maybe like 100 years, like we are not always stick to EVM model. But the reason why we firstly go into this EVM equivalent approach is that because we know that the, the urgency for Ethereum is scaling, right? It's not for you know finding some new computational model as extension, but it's it's more for migrating all the existing apps securely to a layer two so that the congested problem can be solved. So that's why we want to provide the EVM equivalency environment at the in the first place, because you know you have to handle with those problems and then you can think of the further problem of a new VM or any any features. So that's one. One thing, like you know, that's just our starting point, and we will also definitely consider more like developer-friendly, you know, VM or, or or something like that. And the second thing is that to build this, um, so there are some arguments around like EVM versus VM, but the problem is that uh, the I think the conclusion most likely is that either you become you build a totally new virtual machine, or like you you, you just reuse this EVM and achieve equivalency because if you you modify part of that. It's nearly a new VM, but you, you you can't just benefit from a totally new design from this virtual machine. So that's why, like, we are thinking of two approaches. One is that adding more feature to this EVM. For example, we can upgrade according to our community desire, like some new precompiles specifically to our layer two, and using the existing EVM structure securely. And secondly, that we are in parallel, we can explore some more efficient Zeki VM to open this design space for more developers. So that's something like we are also exploring. But we, we believe that that's also driven by the developer's needs instead of you know just reusing the compiler and just reusing the same virtual machine because it's fundamentally different. I think the last point is that use, reusing the LVM is very ideal like to support all the programming language. But you know if you dive deeper into the LVM for very high level like language like Rust, Python, those, those Turing complete language with many features, you will find that the LVM IR in the middle layer is very complicated. It's, it's, it's even much more complicated than building a Zeki EVM, like adding support for all those opcodes, because they have very complicated types. They have very advanced features. If you want to support all of them, you, you need to support a very complicated IR layer. It's not just the, the solidity or, or, or anything like, you know, yeah. So I think, you know, even if you have this LEVR port, it's still like, you know, take a very long 
way to go to support all the features of Rust. But if you only support the semantic of Rust, then I think it's you know still like less useful for developers because they still need to change a lot of code. And so that's you know like maybe three points from our perspective. So we are also exploring, but that's like why we we went this as, as our first step. I'll take that challenge. Let's see how fast we can support Rust. Sure. Yeah. 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 Pay <laughs> <Get> forward. <laughs> Awesome, guys. Well, uh, like I said earlier, I really like this metaphor. I feel like a dog trying to drive a car. So I'm going to zoom out this uh, conversation and get something I think uh, the users can understand, I think, a little bit better. And every single Layer 2 team has their sort of, like, vibe, if you will. Uh, like, it's their, it's their culture, it's their branding. And that's often really how like, users ultimately come to, like, determine whether they feel comfortable with a particular ecosystem or not. It's like, what, what are the values or the ethos that each team appears to exude, even though they can't really comprehend some of the very technical words that are being said. Uh, so I'd just like to get uh, each of your guys' perspective as to like, what, what do you guys think about values or culture or vibes when your guys' internal, uh, like, uh, just like communication as to how to build something? And maybe you can share that perspective with uh, the, the broader world. Like, what is, what is the vibe of your particular project? What's the, do you guys have like a, a, an ethos that you stand on? And, and yay, I'll start with you. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, that, that's a, that's actually a very important like aspect of, of scroll, and you can check out more. Like on we we have posted our like articles talking about our vision, value, our technical principles we want to upcode when we are designing our whole architecture. But from the ethos and the you know like the the the, the vision side, we are more open. We are we are open. We have been building in the open source way from day one. Like you you know the a totally open source ZKVM circuits where anyone can run, anyone can and just you know, even PR some code. And most parts of the ZKVM circuits are actually co-built in collaboration with the privacy and uh, scaling exploration team at the ECM Foundation under permissionless license. So we are, we are actually co-built this together. We, we, like a lot of actually credit also come from this community. And uh, because we have this permissionless license, which means anyone can use this repo and build things on top of that. And also we encourage the broader community to do so because we firmly believe that you know building in this open source way leads to more secure and resilient code and help us to foster a broader community of developers and they can check our progress in a very transparent way because you know there are some overclaims right they can just directly fact check our claims of for example like whether we have proofs or not and uh, in that perspective we hold ourselves very you know to a very high standard that with, with all our claims we, we made. For example, we actually have live ZK proofs in our testnet, now can be checked, and we are focusing on, on building and shipping shipping our shipping new features on our testnet. And we are not doing endless PRs, but instead we are you know writing articles explaining what we are building and what our architecture look like and output more educational articles, which is beneficial for the whole space. It's it's not directly, you know, like pointing against each other, but but more like for educating people why this is important and what we are building. And I'm, I'm glad that, you know, even if we, we are still in a, in a relatively stealth model, there is still a, a circle of, of ETH and Ziki researchers who have recognized our work and given us credit where it's due. And we are actually finally ready to welcome a much broader community. And uh, I'm happy to say that we have received over like 25K signups within two days of our pre-alpha testnet announcement. And if you want to be the first batch of users, just sign up at signup.scroll.io. Yeah. Beautiful. Thanks, Ye. And, and Alex, I'll say the same question to you. What's what's the overall value or vibe of ZK Sync? 
Uh, so ZK Sync is deeply mission-driven project. So this this mission that I mentioned in the beginning to accelerate the adoption of crypto for self-sovereignty is hugely important. And uh, we we've written a lot about this. We have a team handbook that walks the new team members through through the values. We are extremely aligned with Ethereum on on the on the approach uh, towards those goals. And every technical decision we make is uh matched like we we it is balanced against the, the 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 principles of freedom resilience inclusivity um uh, like from escape hatches to the way we decentralize the prover to to the way we approach decentralization of the sequencer uh to the way we uh we approach the standardization of of the code bases uh we are we firmly believe in open source everything we do is going to be released under permissionless software license uh, just like we did for version one. With version one, we made some uh, interesting experience with, that made us reconsider the approach to like complete openness. Because we we opened like we were leading the protocol development completely in the open, and then there were people who just forked the code, made modifications that they did not understand, took part like they they copied some they forked off some bugs, and they also changed things that that led to more problems, and they. Uh, they try to front out or front run us with, with regard to the token so like there are powerful incentives for people to just rush with some unready code and try to publish it that's why we're taking like a more conservative approach now so we, we we're opening everything to independent researchers we actually we, next week we will announce uh uh some people we opened it with who are highly credible in the space and then we're going to gradually open it to more and more and more uh, until we have all the audits and all the uh, testimonials from the white hats, where we feel comfortable that the code is safe, then we're going to open source it to everyone. Beautiful. Nice. Thank you, too. Yeah. Kumbaya. Cult, crypto culture, baby. Okay, Alex, you did you did just raise something that I really do want to get in before the end of this panel, which is a question for both of you. Okay. All of the ZK, I mean, realistically, almost all, of the, I pretty much all of the layer two teams out there right now have upgrade keys, right? So there's some set of small number of people that own a multi-sig that can be used to upgrade the system. And that includes upgrading it to something that is malicious and takes all of the money from the system. This is obviously not ideal. You know, I don't want to like rehash why that's necessary because I think we all agree that it is and we understand that, that it needs to happen. But my question is, at what point can we cast those upgrade keys into the fires of Mount Doom? Like, from both of your perspectives, what is the point in time in which, like, obviously it makes sense that now for you to launch something, you can have some level of, um, you know, trust that it's at some level of productionization. But it's a big shift to say, okay, we're throwing away our upgrade keys. If someone comes to us with a bug in the future, we cannot solve that bug. So I'm really curious from your guys' perspective, like, what is the timeline and what is the like concretely the criteria that you think has to be fulfilled to be able to turn off your upgrade keys? And Alex, we'll start with you again. Sure. This is a huge problem. Uh, we're thinking a lot about we I, I published a tweet where uh, we offered the uh, bounty for the best design solution that, that can help solve this problem. And for the broader context, the, the 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 problem here is very different in L2 space compared to L1s because if you have a problem with L1, you can always fork away. And the decision to fork is ultimately with with the people who run the nodes, so you never depend on the honest majority. 
And that is the superpower of public blockchains, like like truly decentralized blockchains, like Bitcoin and Ethereum. Uh, and I can't really think of any other ones that fall in this category. Uh, but um, you don't get this at Layer Twos because at Layer Twos you you have all the funds uh, like are locked into this one contract on Layer One that someone needs to control. Someone needs to like this contract must objectively know. Like who is now like what what code is not canonical like how, what what shall we execute? Uh, the solution we came up with was we have a team multisig that can initiate upgrades, and those upgrades are subject to a time lock period of multiple weeks, and then all the users who are uh, disagreeing with, with with those upgrades can exit, and we have permissionless mechanisms for exit, uh, like escape hatches, like um, forced block proving, etc. But um, if there is a bug and we really need to accelerate, we need to act now and, and just fix an immediate problem, we must go and reach out to an external uh, number of people who we call a security council. Those are highly prominent people from the Ethereum community, very rich and famous. So like they, they like it's very unlikely that they will all collude to, to try to steal these funds. And they must approve an immediate upgrade. Now this is this is not a perfect world because like we we don't want to, to expose those people to like some political uh, struggles, and you know to, to, to some like non-monetary incentives that, that might force them to, to do things. Um, ultimately, what we can do is have multiple layers of protection in in our systems that like all of the checks must be made before uh, like uh, something happens. So a simple example would be if you, we just have a second factor and we have a rollup running, like a ZK rollup, uh, and then we have the number of validators appointed by, by the users who have to approve transactions. Uh, and then you would have to break both the consensus of these validators like, or, or corrupt the stake and find a problem in, in the ZK circuits to, to, to try to exploit it. Uh, but that could compromise the liveness of the system if the proof of stake is, or like this validator set is compromised. Uh, so another option would be to have multiple implementations of rollups, like maybe a few ZK rollups, or maybe optimistic plus ZK rollup. We combine those together and we put them uh, on chain, and then we, we use governance only if they if they disagree, and this is something that Vitalik posted last weekend uh, on Twitter, which is a very interesting idea. Uh, but ultimately, we just need to wait for those systems to, to become mature. Like if something is running for a few years with billions of dollars worth at stake and nothing has happened and those funds were not stolen, and you had honeypots running in the open with like much lower barrier, much lower threshold of... Uh, capability and those are also safe and those have millions of dollars uh, stake in them that the attacker could just grab if they found like much much easier hole to, to penetrate then uh i think then we can say okay we those systems are like plausibly secure and we can rely on them and we can remove the admin key so this is roughly how i think about it maybe there are some ways where we could rely on the governance of layer one Maybe we could declare some rollups as like really important, like systematically important for Ethereum. And we can say like if something goes wrong, 
those systems, then we, we would just rely on, on the votes of, of the general Ethereum community. Uh, and we actually, we don't need to declare them anything special. We just need a governance mechanism that can rely on this external uh, voting power of, of broader Ethereum. Maybe something like this. So like all the ideas are, are really appreciated. Yeah, you want to take the same uh, question, uh, just uh, the overall security of Scroll and your guys' thoughts and plans yeah. around it? Yeah, 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 sure. Uh, I, I think we do have like security plans and security definitely, you know, the, the first priority for, for Scroll because, you know, like stakes are locked in smart contract. And for us, we, we do have security plan. And so there is no like antidote for repeated and more throughout auditing. But besides that, we are going to have an in-house security team and the team will, you know, keep an eye on our code like all the time, and also collaborate with external auditors for safety as well. And also, like it's it's, it's safe for now because all the transactions will be executed using this, you know, existing client implementation. We we don't even implement a new zk executor to execute uh, our transaction. So it's very hard for any attacker to to, to attack our system since they can't run this. You know, sequencer themselves, that's the first place. Secondly, that is existing implementation. And also they they, they have no chance to generate fake proof for for, for this fake trace. Um and, and that's that's one one aspect. And secondly, that as I mentioned, like you know, there are definitely trade-offs be, be like between open source, like very early or very late. But scroll is built on an entirely open source foundation, even including the proving stack of, of Halo 2, which is you know, like many eyes are, are on that, including the Zcash. And for example, like community developer from Zero Park and even Falcon, you want to reuse the same like pooling stack and even like you know sometimes reuse the ZKVM code base. So more broadly, we believe that using this community standards will be the most robust way to write security code and secure our whole code base and secure the, the system of our the, the security of our like overall system. And for the upgrade case, uh, I think we will implement a sufficiently robust system. Before the sequencer is decentralized, like some using some time delay, like which makes sure that users will have enough time for you know before this smart contract upgrading, and in the long run we will progressively add this decentralization and uh, like more become more permissionless. Like, it, but it's it's in the long long run, like because you know decentralization is at different levels. Like first we decentralize prover, and then we consider the overall system. Well, gentlemen, thank you so much for all of your time. I know we've gone a little bit over. Ben, do you feel like you've got all of your questions answered? Oh, my goodness. I had all the questions answered. They spawn more as they always do, <laughs> David, but I feel like a good place to pause as any. Well, I think the, the story of the ZK EVMs uh, is going, we're just at the very, very beginning. Uh, so there will be plenty of ZK EVM content as the, uh, as the story progresses. So Alex, yay, thank you so much for joining me. And, and also Ben, my, my technical co-moderator here, to helping us unpack at the very start of this very long story of the ZK EVM. So thank you, too. Thank you, David, Ben, and yeah. yeah thanks for hosting us. Thanks, Alex. Uh, of course. Of and see... Go for it, Alex. Yeah, just wanted to say, see you guys in Mainnet in 87 days. Oh, yeah, yeah absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> uh, well, actually, can, like, before I, I sign off, can we just speed run through the roadmap for each of you? Uh, Alex, Mainnet in 87 days. Is there anything else about your guys' roadmap that you wanted to talk about? Uh, so we, we're now completely focused on, on uh, launching Mainnet. Uh, Testnet is, is, is up. If you want to be one of the first projects launching Mainnet, we're going to follow the fair launch policy you should get on our test that now and start building. And uh, for the next features that are coming, there are some really interesting things. And uh, 
can talk about them yet, but I will just say that layer three is a lot closer than many people think. Well, I can see that very slight smile on your face. So that's getting me excited there, Alex. Uh, yay, what about you and Scroll? What's the Scroll team's like high level roadmap? Can you speed run us through that? Yeah, 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 sure. I think for our release philosophy, we are progressively re releasing more functionality to test so we can fix any bugs and any UX difficulties early and often towards a more robust like you know, infrastructure test of time. So currently we are at the stage of pre-alpha testnet. It's running internally right now with real live ZK proofs. And we, we pre-deploy some applications like Swap for user to interact with. They can see their transactions being processed on layer two and then finalized on layer one with a proof through an explorer. And if you want to be the first batch of users, again, like sign up our testnet at signup.scroll.io. And the next step will be a more permissionless alpha testnet where developers can deploy their smart contract. And anyone can interact with, with applications on Scroll. It doesn't need any sign up. You can directly use your MetaMask to interact with Scroll with, with using any interface you, you, you like and you are familiar with. And we are testing our functionalities for now, and it will be released soon. And uh, also, like in, in further release, like anyone you will be able to run the provers at home to, to provide a computation power for us. And yeah, so that's uh, roughly our, our plan. And yeah, will, will there be a Scroll token? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. So we are, we are we are focused on building, and we are thinking on long term scale, and want to be extremely thoughtful about you know how to foster a sustainable community of user and developers. And I think you know we can learn a lot of lessons from Optimism and uh, Polygon, which is the only two layer tools which you know already launched their tokens. But currently, we are still focused on building the the best solution technically. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and then Alex, same question to you: Is there going to be a zk sync token? There might be a ZK Sync token, indeed. I had an idea. Awesome. <laughs> Thank you guys so much for joining me. Uh, of risk and disclaimers, of course. Crypto is risky. ETH is risky. Bitcoin is risky. Layer 2s are risky. We didn't get to the conversation of bridges, but bridges are also risky. Uh, but they're less risky if you go to a cryptographic bridge rather than a cross-chain bridge. But you can still lose what you put in. We are heading west. With this, We're on the frontier. It's not for everyone, but we are glad you are with us on the bankless journey. Thanks a lot.